This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to a very special bonus episode of Little Gold Men. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, but I'm not who you're here to listen to. We are sharing the full conversation between Sonia Soraya, our TV critic, and Joe Pompeo, the media writer for Vanity Fair's The Hive. They had a conversation about the Showtime docuseries, The Fourth Estate, all about life inside the New York Times. And as you'll hear, they have a lot of insight, both as a television watcher and Sonia, who knows how documentaries work, and then Joe is a media reporter who knows a lot about what goes on inside the New York Times. And have some really interesting questions about how it works for average viewers to see it, what it's like to see stars like Maggie Haberman and Michael Barbaro in real life. We didn't want you to miss out on hearing the whole thing. So here it is. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of Little Gold Men. I'm Sonia Soraya, Vanity Fair's television critic, and I want to talk about The Fourth Estate, a four-part docuseries on Showtime, which covers the first year of the Trump administration through the eyes of the New York Times newsroom. It's a really interesting view into the New York Times, but one of the things that's so interesting about it, as I wrote in my review, is that it's kind of lopsided, too, that there are some things about it that are really intimate and then others where you feel like you might be getting some PR gloss. I felt like I needed some help to dig into it. So joining me to discuss it more is Joe Pompeo, senior media correspondent for Vanity Fair's The Hive. Hi, Joe. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me um, for this special edition of Little Gold Men. Tell me a little bit about what you thought of The Fourth Estate. It's not like a documentary that's going to break, didn't like break a lot of new ground. Someone who covers the Times, and it's probably one of the, um, it's probably the news organization company I've covered the most in the past eight years that I've been covering media. So I'm like as much of like an, uh, an insider Kremlinologist as, as you can get. So for me, there's an element of, of um, a lot of this is familiar to me. Um, but there was also an element of like, wow, these cameras were there. Like mm-hmm. there, there were so many, they happened, they were there for so many like key moments of like, of reporting for the past. I mean, just, you know, the, when Maggie Haberman gets uh, the phone call um, from Trump, I think it was after the, 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 the health care. Yeah. There was like, I mean, that was like something that people were talking about. There was two reporters he called. One was uh, Bob Costa from the Washington Post. The other was Maggie Haberman. It was a big deal. She got the interview and the cameras were rolling when the call came through. You know, there was just a lot of moments like that, that as someone who has been following a lot of this stuff and covering it, um, it was like really cool, really fun, fun to see. I mean, there's other, like, there's another really great moment where um, Ken Vogel, he came from Politico, he joined the Times uh, within, within the past year. But mm-hmm. he, his biggest hit, I think, is he's been there was when he happened to be, he's at like a popular Washington Beltway um, steakhouse for lunch and happens to be within earshot of like the Trump attorneys talking like super indiscreetly. Oh, right. And yeah, it was like this amazing yeah. story and he got it and he had, he had he tweeted a picture of it. And 
the cameras were there, like the moment he came back into the Washington bureau and like went and told his colleagues about, you know, he dished on this lunch. And it was just like a lot of stuff like that. We were like, wow, they really were there. I talked to some people from the film who said that some of it really was truly just good luck mm-hmm. by chance. But I think these people were also, the filmmakers were there. I mean, someone told me they were in Washington like at least several days a week during the taping right. of this, maybe like once a week in in right. New York. So I thought like as um, as an insider, like, you know, you're going to eat this stuff right. up. I wonder how people who, I mean, you don't, you know, you're you're, you're a media insider. Yeah, um, sort per, of. Yes, yeah. But, you, but you don't like follow the times. Really. I mean, what did you think uh, as someone who is interested in obviously journalism and the times, but isn't like, you know, a student of the uh, criminology of the New York Times. Right, exactly, yeah. the inner workings, yeah. It's interesting because I am someone who, you know, works in media. I love the drama of the newsroom, uh, the drama that I very occasionally participate in myself. And I, I've been reading the New York Times for so many years. I mean, for in some ways, I'm like the ideal person to watch this. And it was really exciting. There were some parts of it that were so exciting. Like when Maggie Haberman is sitting there and she's uh, at her desk in the Washington bureau and she looks at her phone and she's like, he's about to call me. And everyone knows exactly what's happening. And there's like this whole drill that occurs. Yeah, that was like a major newsmaking interview, right? Yeah, and- right. Yeah. Because he just called her. And I remember being shocked that he would just call her when I originally read the story, you know. So seeing that was fascinating. And as you say, this this Ken Vogel thing, too. There are so many little parts of specifically the the way that the New York Times has covered the Trump administration that are interesting. They're like little pieces of recent history to talk about. But then overall, I was a little surprised at how the docuseries, uh, which is by Liz Garbus is the name of the filmmaker, really presents these people as kind of like crusaders of truth and journalism when, I mean, I'm following at least on Twitter, the, some of the dialogue that I know that you're much more immersed in about how, you know, the New York Times has come under some scrutiny, some fire, like some real criticism for the way that they do cover the Trump administration. So it was really interesting to be in those moments and then to sort of feel like I wasn't getting the whole story. Mm-hmm. You didn't think it was quite a puff piece, but obviously the, this is a favorable documentary. I mean, that was my interpretation. What did I mean? Was that how also you saw it as someone who maybe sees a little bit more about this? Because my interpretation was like, this is uh, not exactly soft, but enthusiastic. It's glowing. Yeah. And that's like documentaries are like that. They're not quite it's not like, you know, necessarily like traditional, you know, hard, hard reporting or even necessarily like super balanced. But I thought, you know, I thought it was fair. And I thought, you know, a lot of this is well-deserved praise. When you say this, do you mean that like the Times is getting well-deserved praise? Yes, I think the Times, I think, you know, a lot, you know, they, they, they deserve a lot of, a lot of credit for what they do. And, um, especially in the the past year covering Russia and Trump and all that. I think overall, this was like, you know, this is a great four and a half hour advertisement for the New York Times, whose core business proposition right now is getting more people to subscribe and, you know, be engaged with their journalism. I mean, just, it was, it's, it's good for them. This is great press to the extent that, there is a large population of people who are just, you know, they're 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 riled up about what's happening in this country, and they're on, you know, they want they're on the side of of the people who are like, you know, holding power accountable and all that, and they're, you know, and they are going to watch this, and they're you're going to be, you know, rooting for the the New York Times. Even more. I mean, there's also the other side of this is that there's all the New York Times has a problem with certain, you know, segments of the left who, you know, think that there's two, you know, they're too, um, they're, you know, they're playing access game with, with, with the white house or, you Mm -hmm. know, they're not, they're not tough enough or, you know, they, they, they gave too much attention to Hillary's emails, all these sorts Mm -hmm. of like typical, like lefty criticisms. I'm sure people Mm -hmm. will, you know, and then of course, conservatives will watch this. So of course there's going to be, you know, for, I think for certain, you know, types of viewers, it'll probably like confirm already what their beliefs are about the times. This is just, this is a good 
piece of PR for them. There's no question about that. Right. I mean, and I think it's interesting that it is PR because you could sort of see, I think the New York Times comes off well in a more objective piece too, right? Like, I'm not saying that they've done everything perfectly or done everything the way that like, you know, everyone on the left, for example, would have them. But it's just interesting that they, that the documentary, I feel like it does its best to keep us on the side of really liking the times Mm -hmm. and really seeing them as like our warriors of truth and justice. I mean, I wrote this in the review too, but the theme, the theme music is done by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. And it is just so dramatic so yeah no, it's I like lo- action i kind of love that trent reznor is is there was actually like the, i think the, the end of the first episode mm-hmm. i really thought it was um like closer by nine inch nails that was like coming <laughs> off it was just, you know but yeah the music was um you know it, it definitely conveyed this like re- the whole thing was dark there yeah. was a darkness to it but that was more the, the tension about what's happening in the country and this this institution mm-hmm. that's under fire you know um as you know as, as, as the fake news media or whatever and i think that um there was like a dramatic element that part of me, like rolling my eyes a little bit. Like every every shot of like conversation with reporters and editors was like, you know, when people are like, all the wiping most sweat yeah, wiping sweat brow. off their brows. Right. You know, all the most like stressful, dramatic, you know, moments that could happen in a newsroom as possible were like pretty much the what you saw in, in mm-hmm. the newsroom scenes. When you see some of these reporters at work, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm not really a real reporter. You know, <laughs> you know it kind of makes you, yeah. yeah, you know, but, they, but they, what they do is, um, I think there is a lot more, there is a lot more pressure. So some of that too, I think when you, when you set it to Trent Re- Reznor music, maybe that's also right. um, the way it should be seen. I mean, the stuff with Maggie Haberman and her kids was really like, to me, it, it was actually moving because um, there's kind of a repeated thread throughout, you know, Maggie Haberman, because she's such a well-known name is, is one of the stars of the, of the documentary. And there's a scene where she's crouching on the floor of an empty, like fluorescent lit office, trying to explain to her son that she knows that she promised that she was going to come home soon, but she can't until tomorrow or can't until later. And he's afraid of monsters. Under yeah, she said. She says you're you're yeah. totally fine. Uh, you can't you can't die in your nightmares right. or something, oh. something like that. Yeah. I mean, to her credit, I mean, to all their credit, you see them working like around the clock. I mean, I, I think that's the culture of the times as you you give it your all because you have that byline. So there are things about the whole docuseries that feel there's there's a layer of it that is for the general public. There's a viewer, uh, a layer a little deeper that might be for like your average Times reader or Times fan, someone who listens to the daily. And then there's the level of like, you know, the, the people who are a little bit more like us who work in media, know some people who work at the Times, you have sources at the Times, who you're talking with and trying to understand like how this institution works because they are so influential. And it's really interesting to me that there's just this documentary that's just out there that has a whole level to it that only media people would really get. I mean, to me, that's that's not typical. You know, normally a documentary, you try to unpack those things so that your average viewer gets them. But this is deliberately sort of opaque. So, for example, Joe, one of the things that you told me right after I watched it, and I like could not believe that this almost went by without me, is that Arthur Sulzberger Jr., who was at the time the publisher of the of the paper in the Sulzberger family, which is like worth a great deal of money, is just in a scene. And he's talking to, it seems that he's talking to Emily Steele. He's not, he's not even talking, this, this, is, this yeah. is one of the most interesting um or you know as like from the insider inside Mm -hmm. baseball perspective Mm -hmm. i think it's a scene where uh jim rutenberg is like trying to you know nail down a piece of reporting on one of the bill o'reilly stories that um emily Steele 
was working on. So you see um, in the newsroom, Jim Rutenberg on the phone and Emily is like next to him kind of taking notes. And then they're, they're the media editor at the time, Bill Brink is there and they're all huddled around. And the fourth person huddled, huddled around in that scene <laughs> is Arthur Salzberger Jr. He's just there. The publisher, which I think, you know, I was, I was talking to someone who said, you know, Arthur, uh, he really, you know, he walked to the newsroom. He was a presence. Someone and, in, in the Times. Yeah, some yeah. of the Times was, was yeah. telling me that, you yeah. know. But there was no like, identif- if you're just a viewer, you're not like, oh, there is the guy whose family has owned the New York Times since 18, controlled the New York Times since 1896, right? right? And he wasn't a character in the documentary. His no. son, A.G. Selzberger, who is now, um, who became, you know, the publisher, um, succeeded his father's publisher in, in January. Mm-hmm. He did enter as mm-hmm. as a character, but mostly for a lot of the filming of this, it was Arthur Jr. So it was, it was, it was, it was very cool to see him, like, you know, at a moment, again, a moment of key reporting at one of the biggest stories the Times has 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 broken in the past. Um, you know, they, they won the Pulitzer for yeah. um, their, their Me Too coverage, which included yeah. O'Reilly stuff. And the yeah. publisher was there, you know, just, you know, and this is not, this yeah. is not, there, nothing like um, not suggesting that the publishers there influencing. Them. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not that it was just cool. It's just that he's engaged. And you think of, you know, if you're a viewer, you think of probably the publisher up in the ivory tower and, you know, things right. get when they have to run things by, it gets, you know, sent to the top. And that, you know, kind of is the way it probably happens. But this, that's, that, it was interesting to see it just, you know, there, there he was during it. Right. But not identified by the camera. So then that yeah. was confusing. So you wouldn't know. Right. You would never know. You don't know that that's who that is. But then once you do know, you're sort of like, wait, what's going yeah. on here? And like, and, and I felt that I saw this interesting ripple of it's almost like a gossip layer to it, because the other thing that interested me was the uh, interactions between the D.C. Bureau and the main, you know, uh, the HQ in, in New York. And uh, the way that Elizabeth Bummler, who's the Washington bureau chief, the way that she interacts with her editors in New York. And it's not like nothing. It, it's very rarely. No, it's very rare that anyone deviates from the party lines. But I really found myself sort of thinking about the layers of this that weren't being seen, that were just being hinted at. And I just really wanted to know. Well, that was another really interesting moment. The context, there's always, you know, historically at the times been kind of a tension between Washington and New York, you know, kind of like sometimes a power struggle. This is very much like a dynamic that's been at the times. And there's one moment in the film where um, the D.C. Bureau has, I think they were covering it was it was uh, Trump's speech, the first speech to the joint session of Congress, yes, or, or, yeah. or whatever. They're, they're kind of like it wasn't it the was State of the February. Union. Yeah, yeah, it was early his first yep. speech, and um, the DC bureau kind of was wanted to highlight, you know, his comments about something. And in New York, they kind of wanted to go in a different direction. And and it's interesting because it's immigration, like specifically. Yes. Trump. Yeah, it was immigrant. Yeah, right. it was immigration. So so Elizabeth Miller and the other reporters were were wanted to say, well, you know, Donald Trump is really talking about immigration right now. Right. Immig- uh, undocumented immigrants. And New York kind of the editors kind of called him on a different angle. And Elizabeth right. was like, I mean, she's furious. furious. She's fuming. Yeah. She yeah. T- talks out of school. The cameras yeah. are there filming it. Yeah. She might drop. I don't know if she curses, but she, she says, does. She does. She says. I don't know if we're allowed to say this, but she says, fuck them. They can fire me. Yeah. Yeah. So that <laughs> was like, great. you know, it looks just like a, like a uh, dramatic moment for the documentary, but it does actually reflect something about the institution that mm-hmm. is kind of a dynamic that's, that's long been at, at, at play there. There's other like interesting moments that to, like, you know, if you're an insider, you would, you would pick up on these things. Some of them are just, you know, totally frivolous. Like Dean Baquet um, is known to be a very, he's very, um, I don't want to say he's into fashion, but he's he's a stylish guy. He's he's very sartorial, and you see in the documentary he, here's you know the executive editor of the New York Times. He wears these like nice like, black suits with a black shirt and a black tie underneath. You know, he's mm-hmm. just he's he's a good dresser. That's like something he's known for, you know. So you might you might pick up on that or. 
they're just like the, uh, this is more like kind of procedural, but the, the gratuitous shots of editors like clicking publish on the stories and they go live. It's just, I think it shows, and it was a little gratuitous, like mm-hmm. how many times it, it was kind of mm-hmm. like a trope in the, in the mm-hmm. film, but you know, this is a, this is a place that want, that is like, you know, trying to be digital first and break out of, right. um, this long way they've operated, which is by print deadlines and what's going to go in the paper. So it's not like, you know, they the shot is of, um, you might have maybe a few years ago, different documentary would have been the story appearing on the front page, but I think they were really trying to show, and you know, there's a, there's a certain amount of editing or like, these things are still going through like layers of editing and copy edits and this and that. Right. But at the end, it is a, an editor is pressing publish and it goes up live and everyone in the documentary is very much just working in the moment of the news cycle as opposed to like For the print, print the print deadline. And that right. that came across. That's that's, that's kind of like um, something the Times is really working through right now. So, you know, you, you kind of think it's like, oh, they're clicking publishing. That actually says something about the way the place has has changed in in, wow. in recent years. So that was interesting to me. There's like the team that does the alerts that, yeah. so there's a lot of like workshopping the alert and as soon as it yeah. goes live and how it goes live. And yeah. then of course, all of this interest in the daily and how this podcast is done, which is just a very different type of product. So it is really interesting to get into that. But then I did also sort of feel like I was being pitched to, like I was an investor at a, mm-hmm. at a meeting where they were like, look, we do more than just well, Speaking print. of investors, another, <laughs> another favorite moment of mine as someone, again, who is, I've covered like God knows how many earnings calls. So when there was, you know, so there's a scene where the CEO, Mark Thompson, and the chief revenue officer, Meredith Levy, and a bunch of the, all the other top executives are sitting around a table giving one of their latest earnings calls, which over the past year have been very optimistic because they're getting so many new subscribers mm. thanks to the Trump bump. So it's kind of like, for me, I was like, I've covered so many of these calls, which are kind of like mind numbing and it's always the same thing. And I've never actually seen them all around the table, you know, mm-hmm. like giving, giving the call. There was just like a lot of little moments like, like that, like as, as the most inside you can get, mm-hmm. you're kind of like, oh, this is all just like candy. Yeah. 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 It was like all really exciting. And I really I do find myself wondering what like the average Showtime subscriber is going to think of this. Like, are they going to be as excited by all these little pieces of it? Are they going to are they going to be excited to hear like Peter Baker's name or Maggie Haberman's name? Because I was like, oh, like, oh, I know who that is. I've read their work. The other thing about this documentary that really comes through, I think there was a range of characters that were both kind of like, you know, from the old school times um, really came up through Mm -hmm. the the institution. But also it really highlighted like a lot of the new star power of the times. A lot of these people in the film haven't been there that long. Maggie's only been there um, a couple of years. She didn't even come on as, you know, someone they hired to cover Trump. That was a, a beat that she kind of developed there and it's how she really really broke out into like more of a household name or you know matt puzo and adam goldman uh they've worked together for a long time um they used to work at the ap together and what story did they break in it in the documentary well in the documentary they're they're part of the investigative team that is pursuing russia they're they're both like really well sourced in the the intelligence community Mm -hmm. um but they're both you know pretty also pretty pretty new to the times and then there's people who have been at the times a little longer but are current like mike schmidt is kind of you know he's definitely having a moment mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Emily Steele's in there. Uh, a fair, it, it really captured kind of like, I think, the new crop of talent that is more recognizable people people like you watching this. So I think especially with like Maggie, you know, you know I'm sure my, like my parents know who Maggie, who Maggie Haberman is, is right? Know, yeah. at this point. So I think that there, there will probably be a certain, you know, star appeal for like people who follow 
mm-hmm. the news cycle right now, which is most people. When I was watching it, uh, my my boyfriend got very very excited that Michael Barbaro was. On oh yeah, Barbaro. Yeah, he. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's like the deal. celebrity of of the times right, right now. Right. It's, um, that soothing voice. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because Michael Barbaro does say at some point that. The Daily, which is sort of another kind of like inside the times uh, type of product, exists to give viewers a sense of intimacy with the the brand of the times, with the the authenticity of their reporting. So you're more likely to believe it or to believe what they do if you can hear the reporters talk about it, which I mean, which I think works. And I think, as you were sort of saying earlier, I think that this docuseries kind of aims to do that in a in a different medium, that if you see Maggie Haverman cursing at her Twitter mentions and... Yeah, she had the most F-bombs in the, <laughs> in the documentary, probably. Which I really appreciated, actually because I think anyone on Twitter or in print can seem a little bit buttoned up. But I sort of appreciated like getting her personality. And, and her personality when she's like talking to sources on the, on the phone. I mean, yeah. they, obviously, they were very careful. Right. I mean, that was one of the things, again, like talking to some people who were in the, in the film, that was one of the, the conditions where they really, and you see it a few times where they tell the camera, yeah. this is a sensitive sourcing thing. But there's also yeah. moments where you don't know who Maggie's on the phone with or, or, or Mike Schmidt, whoever, but um, mm-hmm. they're like, it's like live reporting that is getting into the paper of record and like changing the course of the news cycle for the week. And, you know, it's, it's, it's all, um, you know, you're watching them just have these conversations, but I mean, wouldn't you love to know who was on the other end of that, that phone, yeah. you know? So there's like a, there's a, a real intrigue there that makes this probably, you know, exciting for the civilian viewer. For the civilian viewer, yeah. like, which I feel like I am. Um, and, and I mean, I think that what, one of the many things that interests me about this, so whether or not this docuseries does what the Times hopes it does, I don't think that the critics of the times will be appeased by it because if anything, uh, it'll probably, I, it'll probably confirm their, exactly. why they, you know, are, are pissed off at the New York times. Because I have to say, like, it really shocked me that, and, and it, it's partly cause I just don't know, you know, I don't know what this, how this stuff works, but you know, so there's a, there's a scene in the fourth episode where Jeremy Peters, um, interviews Steve Bannon and, uh, the intimacy they have with each other, the way that Bannon congratulates Jeremy on his new book that's coming out. Which is funny. That, that was another moment for me because I'm, I, that was my scoop about his book coming oh, okay, out. So he's like, great. he tells Steve in the car, oh, they announced my book today. Yeah, so yeah. I was like, oh, I know exactly what day that was. Right. And I, you know, I you were in the news part cycle. of that rollout, you know. So, yeah. But no, that's a, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that is a really good example of like how, of how source management works. And it, I think it also, as much as people, you know, have this impression of people like Steve Bannon and people in the industry, you know, just hating all of us. And Mm -hmm. they, they play ball, you know, behind the scenes and Steve Bannon, I mean, he was, you see Bannon play ball, you see Bannon play ball. And and to his credit, you know, Bannon is fairly transparent about Mm -hmm. the extent to which he engages. He he was known to be a good source for reporters, but you see, yeah, you see Jeremy when he goes to the Breitbart embassy, I think might be a different scene. And he, he brings him kombucha. He said, I I know you're on a health kick. And he's like, oh, here, (laughs) Here's my team. Uh, Bannon introduces him to his stepmother or something like that. Yeah, you know, because these relationships are, you know, the you know when you're when you're a beat reporter uh, yeah. like Jeremy or other people at the times are, you are balancing, you know, dealing with these people, you know, d- day in or day out or at least every week, and and you know there is a certain you know tr- uh, level of transaction that goes into like you know your relationships with sources, and, and you do kind of have to you know develop. You know, you don't want you're not, not a friendship or a coziness necessarily, but you have to develop a rapport and a, and a trust. And mm-hmm. I think that the way you see 
you know, Jeremy interacting with Bannon. It's not like it's not like that's something that they wouldn't want in the documentary. Cause that's that's how it works. And that's probably like I think that this this documentary, you know, um, if you're a you know a savvy viewer, I think you will come across with a better come away with a better understanding of how reporting works. Right. Certainly, yes. I think that could be interpreted by the left as like, well, look, he's be- you know look how close they are with with Bannon. I mean, any and- of the critics of the Times, left or right or anything, could take issue with the closeness to the sources. And I, I almost wish the docuseries had just come out and said, well, this is kind of how everybody does it, or this is kind of the only way we know how to do it. This is how we've done it in the past, too. Um, but they don't quite. Instead, they're just sort of like, oh, look, he's talking to Steve. Yeah. And so, again, I think probably, you know, I, there's a certain level of media savvy you have to have to understand how that, right. how that kind of relationship mm-hmm. works. But it's probably mm-hmm. interesting to people to see Oh, we, Steve, I thought he hated the whole media, but here, here he is being, mm-hmm. you know, cordial with, with a New York Times reporter and he's giving him information mm-hmm. that, you know, potentially will be newsworthy or, you know, um, you might learn something from. So, I mean, in the same way that when Trump calls Maggie Haberman and there is, uh, of course, on one hand, there's the, the failing New York Times narrative, the like, they never get me right, like, they won't take me seriously. And then he's calling her. There's a, familiar, there's yeah. a familiarity right. in their conversation, right. you know. Right. Um, you see her, she's she's being tough and, you know, like throwing out questions, but, you know, they, they kind of, it's friendly, you know, so I don't know, I think it's, I think it is important for people to see how this stuff works. Yeah. It's it, these stories don't just like end up in, you know, these, and especially with the, with the Russia stuff, I mean, mm. you see, I mean, that's some of the most high stakes and most difficult reporting to nail down. It involves classified information and the Mueller probe and the stuff. And there's one point where you, where they're trying to nail down, like in early in, in early 2017, there was just this like rush of stories coming out of the Post and the Times. Like every night, there was some. It's when we were really first starting to get these like big headlines about you know the the potential ties with Russia right. and Flynn and all that. And the documentary really really captured that. And there's the team of uh, investigative team that's that's probing this, and they they're like, yeah, we made a list of like 150 people you know, who might have information about this and we're just going down the line. Call. You know, it shows that there's so much work. It's not just people, you know, we, there's all this talk of leakers and leakers. It's not just like people yeah. are calling up Mike Schmidt or Matt Apuzo or whoever and just like, I mean, sometimes maybe that is how it works. And I think yeah. that even, there's even a moment in the documentary where you see Schmidt explaining, um, I got a call from a guy who's a friend of Comey who wanted to tell me about um, this memo, you know. But yeah. you also see that like this stuff takes a lot of muscle yeah. To, to put together and not just from the reporters, but you see these, you know, you do these scenes where you have like a dozen editors around a table figuring out how to like play a potentially explosive story. And it's like, even at Vanity Fair, we, we don't have that sort of muscle, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, you see how many, how many hands touch a single story right. of that level at, at a place at the time. A single word, a single word in a headline or a story, a single yeah. There, there was one scene where literally there's like a dozen editors in New York, and I think it was maybe the story about Bannon's going to be ousted, or, or I forget. I think, I think mm-hmm. that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like we're you know we really just have some concerns about the second graph. You know, it's like these. You know, it, it just shows like how much they deliberate over word choice and and things like that. There's this one little montage, which is great if you're like a writer or a grammar person, where they go over one verb and they, they yeah. do it like three and, times. And it went from like fraught, dire, fraught to dire to treacherous, to treacherous or something right. like that. And like for me, as someone who struggles with word choice, I'm like, oh, this is the drama I was looking for. Like, go get to my veins. I really appreciated how seriously they put that front and center about like what they do. But it's, it's interesting too, because... 
the the treachery uh speaking of treacherous stories or 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 fraught stories um you know one of the things that this docuseries had to deal with was the fact that glenn thrush was one of those names one of that the star power i uh, arguably of the time yes yeah i I forgot to mention him in my my list of the new stars with him (laughs) well i mean he uh you know, early on in the docuseries, he's I think he's thrown out of the White House briefing room. And then there's a like a lot of solidarity with him. And, and there's sort of a uh, he's central. And then and, and I assume he was edited out of later episodes like or edited down in later episodes. But after the Times reporters break these huge sexual harassment scandals, there are complaints brought against him. And they are very careful in the documentary to not go into the specifics of the complaints, which was which I thought was interesting. You know, having reported on this at the time, it was like a less clear cut case. Mm-hmm. And it was um, something that people were wrestling with more than, you know, I mean, you look at what happens, Matt Lauer, it's just like unequivocal, like, Okay, that's, right. that is nasty, scummy, you know, stuff. And I think that people didn't as much know what to make of the Glenn situation. Right. There appeared to be more genuine ambiguity. And I and I do think, and this is mentioned in the docuseries, I think one of the reasons that there's confusion about how to move forward with the cases like this is because, as Dean Paquette says, a few years ago, he would have shrugged this off in a newsroom. He would have said to deal with it because that was the culture of newsrooms. And so there's a real... Uh, you can see that they're all trying to figure out how to address something that typically would have been accepted and knowing that they kind of have to because they have set the standard for what, you know, what we should expect out of uh, out of our public figures or men in workplaces. And it's an intense scene. Um, and I and I, I quote it directly in, in my piece, too, because, you know, uh, the the he's he, uh, Dean Paquette's on a conference call with the White House uh, reporters, uh, the Washington Bureau. So including many of the names that we've talked about. And I think it was just the White House team. Like his, right. his, his oh, White, White so it was like team. maybe five or six of them. OK, right. But like I think I think Peter Baker's on the call. And I think uh, Julie Hirschfeld Davis, Maggie's on the call. Maggie Haberman and, um, and Elizabeth Mumler's on the call. Too. And maybe Michael Sh- Michael Shear might be on it. Maybe. Yeah. They're, they're, they show you, but I can't it's remember. It's his most, his, his most immediate colleagues, colleagues in, in the right. bureau. And uh, explaining the decision and why the decision was made. Um, and, and, and I'm really curious. I, I know that you have more thoughts about this, too, because the first thing that Dean Paquette says is when, well, like when he was like, well, we were trying to figure out, like, what, what offense did he commit? And the first question we asked was, well, did he hurt the brand of The New York Times? And, you know, the next question he asks is like, and was anyone made uncomfortable and blah, blah, blah. But the brand of the New York Times, I mean, that's what the whole thing is about. That's what this whole thing is about. That's what that's what Trump is attacking. That's what Bannon is attacking when they say things like, you know, the mainstream media, whatever, whatever, their shills. It's very, I think, uh, very interesting to talk about that because there's a way in which that is uh, maybe a sort of cynical move or a selfish move. But hearing you talk a little bit about the way that the institution thinks of itself, the brand of the New York Times is also something that they treat as kind of like does he, I don't know, does he use the word brand? Does he say brand or does he say the New York Times? Oh, that's a good question. I can check to be sure. But well, I the think point is, the, the, the point is, is that, yes, I think that this is a place. This is an, mm-hmm. an institution, a church like sacred institution. Right. That, you know, and the people who work there really, they they believe in this institution. And it is very much, um, it's it's a big deal when there is something that um, harms the institution. And there's been a lot of examples where the institution has been uh, delivered, you know, great harm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, Jason Blair scandal, mm-hmm. you know, the Judy Mill. I mean, there's, there's you know, mm-hmm. there's... Um, 
big wounds the Times has sustained and had to work through as an institution. So I think it's not surprising to me. I think probably a lot of people would have a problem with him not addressing the concern of the women first. Mm -hmm. But it's not surprising to me that that is something that is, you know, at the fore of um, the minds of the, of the leaders of this of this place. And I know, you know, having reported on this at the time, there was concern about, you know, we have to be very careful in how we respond to this. We, we have to consider that, you know, we have led a lot of the reporting on these, on these Me Too issues. And certainly there was an acknowledgement that they uh, would be in contention for a Pulitzer Prize. Mm-hmm. And that was definitely something that was weighing on the minds of, of, of people in high positions at the times as they, as they were considering how to respond to the situations, how, how, how that could possibly affect their, mm-hmm. you know, their standing um, when the Pulitzers come around the next year. So yeah, there was, there's a lot, there's a lot of things about the times that make, makes that a really complex decision. And a, yeah. probably someone, um, on the outside, it's, you know, it's hard to like accept or, or understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, it's the way the place works. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, and th- that was another interesting, you know, part of the documentary because that was a story that played out very publicly. And I was covering it at the time, um, and trying to learn as much as I could about, you know, what the investigation, I got a lot of details about what the investigation entailed and how many, who they were talking to and what types of questions. And very much I, I was able to, you know, um, I heard from a lot of people in the Washington bureau about how they felt about this and they really felt like he should not lose his mm-hmm. job over this. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when I was reporting that story, like it would have been gold. I mean, if like, Literally, like the, the, those quotes from the conversations with the, like he, they were all on being filmed. Like, who would have thought there was a camera? Like, if I had access to that at the time, that that would have been like the money of the yeah. piece. And now yeah. it's like it's on Showtime for the whole the whole world to see. So, what is that meme? I've been working on this piece for a year, and he just published. Oh yeah, no, exactly. I thought, but no, but it, but I think it also shows that they 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 were willing to put some of this stuff, a lot of the stuff, on camera. Yeah. you know, uh, and even the you know they they film. The scene before he talks to the Washington Bureau, there he's in a room with um, Carolyn Ryan, who's a prominent editor there, Sam Dolnick, um, who's a member of the Salzberger family, and Danielle Rhodes-Ha, who's one of the communications people, who's someone I deal with, have dealt with a lot mm-hmm. over the years. And they're they're being taped devising kind of like the public-facing messaging strategy around right. this. You know, these are right. these are very private conversations. Again, that as a reporter, I would have loved to have <laughs> access, a, gl- a glimpse behind the curtain at, at these moments at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was actually amazing to me that there was a Showtime camera in the room for this stuff. And now we all see how it went down at the TikTok of how they were they were thinking uh, about this situation in real time. And it's interesting because my immediate, my focus on the documentary is like, oh, well, I see some transparency, but I don't see more. And I think you're, because you, you've coming from covering it longer, you're like, oh, wow, they're offering us any transparency at all. Like they're really letting us behind Well, time is pretty transparent. And that, I think that there's still, there were... Um, you know, they, they got a lot of criticism for the Glenn Thrush decision, which we don't see the, you know, we kind of like don't see, it kind of like ties it up with a, neatly in the documentary. Yeah. But that they- In ways that's a little problematic, I must say. There was a yeah. lot of um, anger that they did not give, um, you know, internally there was there was anger that there was not, among some people, there was not more of an explanation about what behind what went into, into right. this decision. Certainly externally, they got a lot of flack just for keeping the guy. Mm-hmm. Um and I think I think Dean acknowledges in the they, the film does acknowledge that there was some criticism, but it doesn't convey the level of backlash there was, how explosive right. that situation right. was. And the film never mentions, uh, for what it's worth, the ongoing conversation about the op-ed page of the mm-hmm. Times, which I feel like I see a new chapter of every every week, it's, every day. It's been big. And it's that, been big. It's been big. And that was maybe, um, you know, that, that, that really started exploding and maybe like 
towards the tail end of the of the era the documentary right. covered. There's also a question of this is a, this is about the newsroom of the New York Times, mm-hmm. and again, you know, the Times is a place where this, as all news organizations, but especially at the Times, this you know this this wall between the two sides right. and. Right. So it wasn't. I wasn't totally unsurprised that they they kind of didn't include that or that. Really, is more I think of like an inside mm-hmm. baseball type of debate that plays out largely on on Twitter. Interesting. I think Twitter has probably driven the outrage over the op-ed uh-huh. uh, section more than than anything else. No, I mean I Twitter th- was a big part of the documentary. To be to be fair, but I, that's interesting because I live on Twitter, so I wouldn't know the difference. But um, I, I understand that. If you understand how this institution is structured, of course, they're off, you know, op-eds off in their own thing. They're doing their own thing. No one's interfering with them. But to the outside, it's just all the New York Times. Exactly. And I think that this is part of part of the part of the reason that the fourth estate is both super great and super frustrating is that it gives you so much. But then it doesn't explain some of this kind of basic like I, I, I watched it and I was like, why, why didn't you at least tell me that the op-ed was page was getting criticism? Mm-hmm. Or like, why didn't you even tell me that, um, you know, why didn't you tell me any of the allegations against Thrush? Why didn't you tell me anything about even naming the the women who who stated it might have been interesting? Mm-hmm. I think the closest they got, they showed the Vox art right. article, but like blurred out the byline. Oh, <laughs> like, did they really? I mean, I, I that was what I noticed is that I didn't. I, I felt like I couldn't even see the byline. And the people don't even. I mean, normal people don't don't look at bylines to begin with half the time. Right. So it's kind of like a. You know. Well, the reason I mean, for what it's worth, the reason that piece was interesting is because the author of that piece herself had right. felt that uh, I guess felt. Uh, taken it's one of the accusers uh, by yeah. brush right so uh, her name is Laura McGann and so f- that to me was just an, a piece of it that just didn't I don't know I mean obviously they were trying to do a lot but getting inside this window and there's obviously so much there too it mostly left me wanting more it mm-hmm. mostly left me wanting to discuss some of the things that I saw it felt like a sort of unprocessed footage like mm-hmm. I'd gotten this hidden camera but I needed a lot of help with understanding what I'd seen mm-hmm. hopefully everyone else in that position is listening to this, this podcast <laughs> yeah, exactly. right now <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about what you do you think that this addresses the critics of the times because I, I think now we're what we're curious about is you, you know we, we had talked a little bit before about the post about how uh the the movie The Post, the Steven Spielberg movie The Post, was like this big glossy like homage to journalism, and and, and like everyone ate it up, myself included. Mm-hmm. Um, is this the same type of thing for the Times? Do you feel Im- excited about journalism? Do you feel emboldened as a truth warrior? This is not the same as like a Hollywood treatment. This isn't Spotlight, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously did a lot better than than, mm-hmm. the, than the Post did. I but there was say, like yeah. a certain sense of eye rolling inside the Times that the Post was about. The post covering Watergate and not, or the, or the Pentagon Papers, sorry, right, um, and not and not the Times. It, mm-hmm. it felt like, why would you make that story about the, mm-hmm. the New York Post? Mm-hmm. The last time there was a, a documentary, uh, you know, a um, cinematic treatment of the New York Times was was Page One, which was much more this moment of like kind of existential dread that really captured um, how the you know how they were hit by the the, the financial downturn and all the the disruption happening in media and. Um, this was much more triumphant. Mm -hmm. Uh, I definitely think that this, you know, has, uh, the potential to get, you know, people, I, I, I feel no more like excited about the New York times having watched this because again, this is a place that I cover. It's not Mm -hmm. my like position to be, you know, like cheerleading them on Mm -hmm. or, um, I just don't look at it that way because it's, um, you know, it's something that I have to just look at as like, as a company that I have to report on. Um, 
but I, I can't imagine that anyone who's already has inclined to be on the side of, of, of journalism, anyone who's inclined to, you know, be very concerned about what's happening in the country right now wouldn't come away thinking like, oh, you know, thank you for everything you, you do, mm -hmm. you know, to, to all the journalists that are, that are, that are portrayed in this. I think it's, it's good for them. And I think that, I think, you know, from people I've talked to at the times, you know, who, who were, who were, you know, involved in the, in the film, I think they have come across feeling pretty good about it and and that it was you know at the end of the day it's good for people to see what they do you know i i can't imagine it changing too many minds one way or the does anyone's mind change anymore even probably, so, yeah, probably not yeah but yeah you know I, I i definitely i mean i enjoyed it i think most it's gotten good reviews mm -hmm. um yours was a tougher review than some of the some of the <laughs> other ones i thought but you also you know had a, a pretty positive reaction to, to most aspects mm -hmm. of it so i think it's a, it's a win for them and the other interesting thing is the times right now they are in a moment where, as with, you know, uh, you know, a lot of others as well, you know, they're, they're cutting deals with, I mean, the, the Daily has been a huge cultural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. They're trying to ride that wave and they're getting more into Hollywood and TV and yeah. you know, they have a um, deal for an FX show and a Netflix show. They want to do more stuff like that. And again, granted that the show, you know, Showtime produced this, not the Times, but it kind of fits in, I think, a little bit with kind of this direction the Times is, is going in, uh, uh, you know, where it's kind of like the next gen things they're working on. A few years ago, all you heard about was like, you know, VR and, you know, mm -hmm. data visualization and graphics and digital innovation. And now it's kind of like they are making an effort to, you know, to to get more into like TV and, you know, that that space and all in the service of, of getting people more engaged with the institution, more people who will buy subscriptions, which is the you know, their core business model right now. So I think that the right. fact that this Showtime doc, it, it, it feels like it fits in with that, yeah. um, you know, that, that kind of business strategy that's happening at the Times right now. Right, absolutely. It's like the branding of authenticity, mm -hmm. that they can make their integrity into something that is engageable content. Yeah. Um, so to me, it feels like a win. It feels <laughs> like a win, a win for them, right? Yeah. Do you agree yeah. overall? I I, I guess I feel a little bit more mixed about it, but only because I I think that the Times does great stuff, and I don't think that this is on par with the great stuff that they do. And I think that if a Times reporter would, if a Times reporter had had reported out a piece about a publication like this, they would have made different decisions, yeah. and that's very clear. But that goes me. back to the question of you know what is a documentary right. film? You know, the, um, oftentimes they are. You know, I mean, this is kind of the you know the whole thing with with uh, make, making a murderer, right? Mm -hmm. You know that um, you know there's not the same standard I think for necessarily right. for documentary filmmaking, right. which there's is there's more license to be a little more have a little more point of view one way or the other, right? Right. There is, but, and then see from this going into territory that I cover, I get, it's frustrating. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, fr so, and speaking of making a murder to go, you know, making a murder won the Emmy in the category that, uh, that the fourth estate will be contending in, which is outstanding documentary or nonfiction series, but making a murder had factual errors and, mm -hmm. and it was hard to come to terms with that as someone who was wrapped up in the story, just as, you know, anyone else would be. Um, I found myself struggling with that side of it. And I think it's important to say when when your nonfiction, quote unquote, nonfiction has has an angle to it. And to go back to the whole point, the times would the times would be clear about that. And so it's it's interesting. I'm so interested in this place. I'm so interested in this, the, the, the workings of the times. The Fourth Estate is a really good starting point, and I I want more. Now I'm like, well, tell me more. Tell me more about how this place works, and 
and the decisions you're making, if if this is how you're going to go forward with it, then I'm looking forward to engaging further. I and do you, so do you think this will this be a real a serious contender for that for that Emmy? I think that I, I think that journalism is a great light of our world. And I think that Hollywood really loves glomming onto things <laughs> that it <laughs> thinks are going to save the world. They liked, you know, they liked the post more than maybe they should have. They liked Spotlight. And so now we're looking at it's a different category. It's a different it's a different award system entirely from the Oscars. Now we're talking about the Emmys. But I feel like it could still be there because even that true crime stuff, some of the appeal of it was, oh, someone's telling the truth now. Finally, that's very appealing. And especially right now when we're talking about, you know, an industry that's really aligned itself against the Trump administration and Trumpism and what it represents. The New York Times ought to be the bastion of truth that we can all agree on. So I think that they might they might be they might cast their votes in that direction so yeah we'll see joe thank you so much for being on the show thank you thanks for listening to this bonus episode of little gold men we'll be back next week with regular episodes please find us all including joe and sonia at vanityfair.com and we'll talk to you next week hi i'm jeremy larson the reviews director of pitchfork and this podcast is supported by pitchfork music festival Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Thank you.